From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. Former President Donald Trump won the GOP's South Carolina primary, putting him one step closer to the presidential nomination. So what's next? The Alabama State Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are extrauterine children could have wide-ranging implications for IVF. Let's say that an embryo is detected to contain a very serious genetic anomaly. Could that lead to forced transfer of diseased embryos? Plus, we talk about movies so bad, they're good. It's Sunday, February 25th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Former President Donald Trump crushed his presidential primary opponent, Nikki Haley, this weekend in her home state, with Trump taking almost 60 percent of the vote and Haley taking about 40 percent. Trump declared the GOP united, and he says he's looking toward the next presidential primary races. Michigan's coming up. We're doing great. The auto workers are going to be with us 100 percent because they got sold out by this country. But Michigan's up, and uh, we're going to have a tremendous success there. And then we have a thing called Super Tuesday, and uh, I think we're leading 91 to 7 overall. Trump's victory in the conservative state was expected. It is his fourth straight nominating contest win. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, meanwhile, is vowing to stay in the race for the Republican nomination after losing her home state's primary to Trump. And as NPR's Jong Yoon Han reports, Haley's supporters say they are sticking with her. The mood at Nikki Haley's watch party was a mix of disappointed, unsurprised, and yet still optimistic. Bill Medved of Charleston says he's upset that the state turned out more for Trump than Haley. I think sometimes people are just not willing to support a woman at this, unfortunately, at this point. And that may be an overriding thing, at least in South Carolina. But former Bluffton Mayor Lisa Selka says Haley has what it takes to turn the race around. She's smart, she's passionate, and she is what every female should want to aspire to be, the way she handled herself tonight. Haley says she will continue campaigning in the lead up to Super Tuesday on March 5th. Jung Yoon Han, NPR News, Charleston, South Carolina. Israeli police turned water cannons on protesters, demanding their government bring home hostages held by Hamas. This was a first as protests against Israel's strategy have continued. At the same time, Israeli, U.S. and Qatari negotiators in Paris continue to work for a ceasefire. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. Thousands protested Saturday night in cities across Israel against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government demanding early elections and a deal to release the hostages held by Hamas at any price. Those sprayed with water included already released hostages and relatives of hostages still being held in Gaza. Israeli police say at least 21 people were arrested in Tel Aviv. In Jerusalem, around 1,000 people marched with torches from the president's residence to the city center, calling for the release of the hostages and early elections. A man whose son was killed by Hamas on October 7th told Israeli media that Netanyahu and his ministers are turning the hostage family into the enemy. Eleanor Beersley, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Harvard University may soon consider implementing a formal stance of neutrality. 
The Harvard Crimson reports that interim president Alan Garber is expected to announce a working group to consider the change. This would mean that the university would not make political statements as an institution. Former Harvard president Claudine Gay resigned last month after criticism of her response to the war between Israel and Hamas, followed by allegations of plagiarism. A real estate developer is pulling plans to build a 22-unit residential complex in Cambridge because of the city's climate policies. The developer had planned to double the existing number of units on a property in Central Square, but he told the Boston Business Journal that the city's new climate regulations prevented him from building ground-level units. The climate policy is meant to prevent future flooding issues, but the developer says the project is no longer financially feasible. If you have thoughts about the high cost of energy bills, then the State Department of Public Utilities wants to hear from you. The department is collecting public comments through Friday as part of an investigation into how to improve energy affordability programs. The state estimates that many households that are an 80 percent or below the median income level in Massachusetts can struggle to pay their energy bills. For a sweet way to wrap up your February school vacation, head to Worcester. The State Department of Conservation and Recreation is offering free maple sugaring tours at Blackstone River Valley Heritage Center today. Visitors will learn how maple syrup is made. The Department of Conservation and Recreation's Julie Martin says it's a New England tradition. This time of year, it's great to check out a maple sugaring program because those are really unique and you always learn something new and it's always fun to learn about the maple sugaring process, especially if you've never seen that before. 90-minute tours run every hour from 11 to 2. People should dress appropriately for the outdoors. Sunshine today in Boston, highest in the upper 30s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. In Columbia, South Carolina last night, Republican Senator Tim Scott had a question. Is South Carolina Trump country? Voters in South Carolina's Republican primary have spoken, giving former President Donald Trump a big victory against former Governor Nikki Haley in her home state. I said earlier this week that no matter what happens in South Carolina, I would continue to run for president. As for Trump on his win, seems like he's already looking to Election Day in November. I just wish we could do it quicker. Nine months is a long time. Let's bring in Mara Eliason, NPR national political correspondent for more. Hi, Mara. Hi there. So no surprise in South Carolina, the Trump victory had been expected. So what now? Well, as you just heard from Trump's point of view, the primary is over. He doesn't want to focus on Nikki Haley anymore. He wants to focus on President Biden. And he did that yesterday in a very big speech, but not in South Carolina. It was at the big conservative conference, CPAC, outside of Washington, D.C., 
Trump hugged and kissed the flag while Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA played. He gave a kind of American Carnage 2.0 speech. He said, a vote for Trump is your ticket back to freedom and out of tyranny. It's your only escape from Biden's fast track to hell. He referred to himself as a political dissident. He called those who have been prosecuted for the assault on the Capitol on January 6th hostages. But for all that Trump did talk about in his nearly two-hour speech at CPAC, um, it's notable what he did not mention. So he did not mention abortion or IVF. Yes, that was striking. That was the big news last week when the Alabama State Supreme Court, by an 8-to-1 vote, ruled that frozen embryos are children. They're human beings. And for people who've been campaigning for years for legislation that says life begins at conception at the moment of fertilization, this is the logical conclusion of those efforts. But Republicans understand how difficult a political issue abortion has become for them ever since the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe. And this makes it even more difficult. Republicans are very aware of how popular IVF is. About 80% of people, including evangelicals and people who describe themselves as pro-life, are for IVF. And they've been scrambling over the last several days to say that. But Democrats are going to be spending millions of dollars to make sure that voters know which Republicans in Congress have been voting or sponsoring the Life at Conception Act. And that includes Speaker Mike Johnson, and that act grants equal protection to all people from, quote, the moment of fertilization. Well, so what, what are you watching on this uh, as it plays out? Because, you know, even if Alabama passes legislation to protect IVF, as you said, this is not going to go away as a political issue. No, this is one of the best issues that Democrats have. They're going to continue to try to use it against Republicans. And um, they, even if the Alabama state legislature does pass a bill to protect IVF, it still complicates things for Donald Trump. He's been trying to do two things at once. One is he takes credit for toppling Roe v. Wade. He calls attention to the fact that he appointed three conservative justices to the Supreme Court. They made the majority that overturned Roe. But there are also reports that he wanted to support a national abortion ban at 16 weeks. 16 weeks polls pretty well, but a national ban is extremely unpopular, a national ban at any number of weeks. That basically would fly in the face of the states' rights arguments that Republicans have been making on abortion. It means that states like California and New York do not get to decide on their own about this. And so that issue might help Democrats, but in about 30 seconds we have left. What, what about the border? Do we have a better sense of what President Biden might do through executive action? Well, Biden is considering an executive order to try to clamp down on the border. The pro and, of course, immigration is as bad an issue for Democrats as abortion is for Republicans. But Biden has always said that he needs legislation to really control the problem at the border. But Donald Trump has made it very clear he doesn't want an abortion, uh, I'm sorry, an immigration bill passed. He wants to use it as an issue against Biden in the election. And that bill is going nowhere in Congress. That's NPR's Mara Eliason. Thank you so much, Mara. You're welcome. To get a better sense of the state of the battlefield in Ukraine and how Ukraine's weapons supplies are holding up as the conflict enters its third year, we reached out to retired General Ben Hodges. He's a former commander of the U.S. Army in Europe. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for the privilege. 
What's the state of Ukrainian stockpiles now, and what type of weapons do they need? Well, in the two years since the large-scale invasion by Russia, uh, Ukraine has expended enormous amounts of ammunition and weapons. And at this point, they are very, very low on uh, artillery ammunition and on the long-range precision weapons, which could really make a difference. In terms of shortages, what's been the impact on the battlefield? Well, what we're seeing now is the Russians obviously can tell that Ukrainians are running low because the Russians are receiving a lot less Ukrainian artillery fire against themselves. And they also, of course, they're aware that the uh, aid package from the U.S. has been delayed now for months. And they can also read that European countries are scrambling to find more ammunition to send. So, so the Russians see that. Therefore, they are increasing the pressure, hoping to overwhelm Ukrainian defenders in several different places, as they did in Avdivka just last week. Are Europeans able to step in and fill the gap if the U.S. can't provide that aid and provide the ammunition that Ukraine needs? I think they can provide a lot of it. Actually, the combined contributions of Europe exceeds what the United States has provided. So, so they are doing a lot. And if you could get all of them focused on this as a priority, you know, there is a lot of capacity for production of ammunition inside Europe. You will have seen just the other day that President Pavel of the Czech Republic had managed to find several hundred thousand rounds of artillery ammunition and now Canada, the Czech Republic, and one or two other countries have stepped forward to say that they would pay for it to get it there. 800,000 rounds is a lot, but that's probably about a fifth of what is needed to help them get through the next few months. I'm not going to say that they're going to run out, but when you're in, in this kind of level of large-scale warfare where Russians are launching anywhere from ten to 20,000 rounds per day against Ukrainian defenders, the defenders have to be able to shoot back enough to force Russian artillery to move or to destroy the artillery. This is totally avoidable. That's the part that's so frustrating, Aisha, is that we don't have to be in this situation. If the Congress had acted months ago, uh, we would not be having this conversation. If our European allies had also acted quicker, we would not be in this situation. Well, what do you say to those who would say, given the failure of Ukraine's counteroffensive last year, there are critics who say what we need now is negotiations and not more weapons. What are your thoughts on that? I would say, first of all, anybody that thinks that you can negotiate in good faith with Russia has never read a history book or has no clue of what this conflict is about. Now, the Russians have never lived up to any agreement unless they were absolutely forced to. But to make the case, there's three reasons why this war is important for us. Number one, American prosperity depends on European prosperity. Europe is our biggest trading partner. If Europe is not stable and secure, if there is a war there, it disrupts energy supplies, it disrupts food. It, all of these things affect our prosperity. Number two, if Russia is successful and knocks out Ukraine, 
and they will do what they have said they were going to do, which is they will continue on against NATO countries. President Putin has made this very clear publicly. Places like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. And so if Ukraine is not successful, the likelihood of the United States being in a war with Russia because of our NATO obligations, because this would be NATO countries, you're going to have American troops back in another European ground war. And then finally, China. The Chinese are watching to see if we, the United States and the West, are we really serious when we talk about the rules-based international order? That means freedom of navigation, respect for sovereignty, for borders, respect for human rights, respect for international law. If we don't have the will and the capability to defend those things in Europe against Russia, then I think the Chinese will not be impressed at all with anything that we say about Taiwan or the South China Sea. That's retired General Ben Hodges. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the privilege. After two years of conflict and disruption, you might be surprised by the health of Ukraine's economy. First of all, let's keep in mind 60% of Ukraine has not experienced war. GDP was up 5% last year, investment was up 17%, tax revenue was up 25% in January, inflation is down 7%. The number of drone companies has grown from 9 to over 200. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, Penny Pritzker, the U.S. diplomat in charge of helping Ukraine's economic recovery. Hear that conversation tomorrow on your radio, smartphone, or smart speaker. listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us this morning here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8:18. Coming up in about 10 minutes, social spaces for transgender people tend to be youth-oriented. One New Jersey support group offers community and a path forward for people transitioning when they're older. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. WBUR supporters include Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading health care systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. It is 20 degrees in Boston. Plenty of sunshine today and highs in the upper 30s. This is WBUR. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. Donald Trump won the South Carolina Republican presidential primary, this on the home turf of his chief rival for the nomination, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley says she is off to Michigan today and continuing on to the Super Tuesday states beyond that with an eye to the general election. 
Israeli police this weekend turned water cannons on protesters demanding their government bring home hostages held by Hamas. At the same time, Israeli, U.S. and Qatari negotiators meeting in Paris continue to work for a ceasefire in Gaza. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Allies of the late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny say his body has finally been returned to his family. Since his death 10 days ago, there's been a public standoff with Russian authorities over the fate of his remains. Navalny died under mysterious circumstances in a remote Arctic prison where he was serving a lengthy sentence widely seen as retribution for his criticism of Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's thought the authorities are nervous that mourning for Navalny could turn into protest. Joining us to talk about it from Moscow is NPR's Charles Maines. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, Aisha. Charles, this is a bit of a dark topic for a Sunday morning, but fill us in on the latest. Does the Navalny family now have possession of his body? Well, according to Navalny's political team, officials in the Russian town of Solikhard, this is above the Arctic Circle, released the opposition leader's body to his mother, Ludmila Navalnaya, last night. Uh, the exchange uh, ends a pretty grim week-long standoff during which Navalnaya had been trying to first get access to her son's body just to confirm his death and then to claim his remains for burial. And in both cases, the Russian authorities were preventing her from doing so. In fact, as Mrs. Navalny explained in a video, it was worse. So here she says that investigators were blackmailing her, threatening to bury her son in the prison colony where he died if she didn't agree to a secret funeral out of the public eye. In fact, she says one official warned her that time was not on her side, uh, given that her son's body was decomposing. Now, she refused and, of course, won in the end, but the ordeal has been added pain to what was already a grueling week for the Navalny family. Do we know what changed the authorities' minds? Well, there was this online campaign by Russian celebrities, many in exile, calling on President Putin to intervene and release Navalny's body to his mother. People like uh, the Russian-American ballet legend Mikhail Baryshnikov, uh, the Nobel Prize laureate Dmitry Muratov, and others. And many of them pointed out that this was sacrilege, uh, that Putin was violating his own beliefs as a devout Orthodox Christian. Meanwhile, Yulia Navalnaya, uh, Alexei Navalny's widow, uh, released a video attacking Putin in very personal terms, that by refusing to hand over the body, he was proving his beliefs were a charade. 
Uh, did all that pressure change things? Who knows? But let's not forget that Navalny's team also argues another reason for these delays is to cover up evidence of Navalny's murder, a charge that the Kremlin spokesman has vehemently denied. In fact, a state postmortem found that Navalny died from natural causes, although there are, of course, a lot of skepticism towards those findings in the Navalny camp. What happens now? Does this mean that we'll see a funeral as Navalny's mother says she wants? Well, that's the big question, and we don't have an answer yet. Clearly, the last week has shown authorities don't want any mass outpouring of sympathy for Navalny, as evidenced not only by this standoff over his remains, but also by the arrest of several hundred supporters, many for simply bringing flowers to makeshift memorials around the country. For now, Navalny's mother is still in Salihard in the Arctic Circle with her son's remains, and we're waiting to see what plans the family announces next and how authorities react. That's NPR's Charles Maines reporting from Moscow. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you. At least three Alabama clinics that provide in vitro fertilization, or IVF, paused their operations last week. In response to the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling that a frozen embryo can be considered a child under state law, a decision that is raising questions across the country about how the IVF process will work now and what options will be left for parents depending on it to have a family. To shed light on what this ruling might mean, we're joined by Judith Darr, Dean of the Northern Kentucky University Chase College of Law. She studies the legal and ethical questions that reproductive technologies like IVF can raise. Dean Darr, thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Aisha, for having me. Let's start by taking a step back here. IVF has been going on for decades. How have politicians and courts considered embryos up to now? Courts have been considering the question of what is the legal status of the frozen embryo for decades. The first case at a high court level to consider this was in 1992, and it was over the disposition of embryos upon divorce. Who gets the embryos that are frozen when a couple divorces? So for many years, courts have delved into this question, but the Alabama Supreme Court was the first court to designate frozen embryos as children for purposes of the tort law, the Wrongful Death Act, that was interpreted by the court at this time. After Roe v. Wade was overturned in 2022, you you wrote about what that ruling might mean for IVF. Can you explain how you knew that the Supreme Court decision might have implications down the line for IVF? The Dobbs decision is very broad in its language of embryo protection. The majority opinion talks about the preference for the life of the unborn and unborn embryo and unborn fetus, in that case, over the interest of a pregnant person in the context of abortion. The nature of standard of care IVF practice in the world today does result in the loss of embryo. The truth is that 45 years into this technology, this medical marvel and the production of millions of children and happy families across the world, the science remains more art than science. That is that we still are not 100% efficient. So as a result, cryopreservation is a routine and standard part of IVF. And I can talk, and I know there's been a lot of discussion over the last week about the clinical implications of the decision, particularly if cryopreservation is no longer part of the standard of care. 
how would that affect the standard of care if you can no longer and cryopreservation that's the freezing of the embryos just in, in in layman's terms the practice would be more expensive first of all we know that clinics are going to probably look to increase their insurance limits it will involve more cycles for patients because they as i said they'd have to produce one embryo at a time instead of freezing them and using them later on it's more risky to the patient. The additional hormone treatments, the surgical retrieval always pose risk to the patient. Also, um, IVF would be more unlikely to result in a live birth because one embryo at a time would mean multiple cycles. For many women who have age-related infertility, the longer you wait, the more unlikely they might be to produce a, a viable egg. And then finally, there'd be more chances of having an unhealthy child rather than the health profile that we see today. And that's an area that's been um, a little more obscure, but not discussed over the last week. And that is the impact of this decision on pre-implantation genetic testing, which is fairly routine. Talk to me a little more about that. Is it the idea that you would not be able to discard an embryo if you tested it and you saw that it had some serious genetic condition that would make it unhealthy or something like that? You're absolutely right. The decision which does treat the embryo as a child means that the law has to regard that embryo as a person, as a child, and therefore anyone who interacts with that child must act in the best interest of the child. So it converts the legal standard from a negligence standard where you have to be careful to a different, much higher standard where you have to act in the best interest of the child. Let's say that an embryo is detected to contain a, even a lethal or a very serious genetic anomaly. Well, would the court in Alabama say, but that's a child and you can't destroy or harm that child, could that lead to forced transfer of diseased embryos because there's no other outcome that would be in their best interest other than to transfer them? And that is a logical conclusion, follow through to what the Alabama Supreme Court has told us. And so it's easy to see how testing could be illegal or risky to the provider under the Alabama case. That's law professor and bioethicist Judith Dar. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. For some older adults in the U.S., coming out publicly as trans seems impossible. They are nearly three times less likely to come out than adults between 18 and 34. But for the older adults who find each other, transitioning can feel within reach. NPR's Margaret Serino reports. Bernie Wagenblast first began exploring her gender about six years ago when she joined a New Jersey support group called Proudly Me. It's meant for trans people of all ages. At the time, she was in her late 50s, working as a radio announcer and using what she calls her guy voice. And in that first Proudly Me meeting, she just remembers repeating. I have no plans to transition, but it's nice to be able to talk with other people. For a while, that was true. She just hoped that attending the meetings would be enough. But then other people joined after her. And I would watch them move further in their transition. And I would feel 
intense jealousy that they're able to do this and I can't. At the time, Wagonblast's biggest fear with Foley publicly coming out was losing her life partner. It's a big fear for a lot of older trans people who aren't out. There was this one moment, though, the night of the Proudly Me annual award ceremony. In years past, I'd always gone in a jacket and tie, but I didn't really feel comfortable doing that this time, at least not fully. So Wagonblast reached out to her older trans mentor, and she remembers her mentor telling her, I've got a dress for you, and I'll do your makeup, and we'll get you set up, and you'll go to this event as your true self. Mentor Nicole Brownstein has done a lot of these makeovers on people who've come to her in the exact same position. She's helped all of them. In that moment when they look in the mirror, I see the same thing that I saw myself all those years ago. To finally be able to see yourself as you've always envisioned yourself. That night, Wagonblast decided she could and would socially transition. In the process, her greatest fear came true. Her marriage of 42 years came to an end. So this person who was and is my best friend is no longer part of my daily life. So that's terribly difficult. Um, but on the positive side, friendships have become far more important in my life. Friendships like the one she has with Brownstein, who's 77. They have a whole friend group of trans women now that will regularly get together. Go out for dinner and drinks and just group of girls going out to spend a nice evening together. So while the Proudly Me support group does have members of all ages, many love it specifically because of Wagonblast and Brownstein and the others who are navigating this later in life. When Patrick Buenaventura went to their first meeting, they lamented starting their transition at 53, until Buenaventura heard that Brownstein had begun transitioning in her 60s. And then other people pointed out how old they were, and I was like, oh, you know, it's, it's okay, <laughs> you know. We all have our own journeys, and we have our own timelines, and this just happens to be mine, and I'm right on time. When I was supposed to transition is, is now. On the flip side, Proudly Me helps younger members in an unexpected way. Buenaventura remembers one college-aged person who came up to them and said, It was nice to see older trans folks because they couldn't imagine their life when, when they were older. It's been about a year since Wagonblast socially transitioned, and she says that she's still reveling in her new life. To finally be living it for the first four or five months, it was like, pinch me, I... I'm afraid that this is a dream, and that I'm going to wake up from this. Bernie Wagonblast is 67 now. Sometimes she thinks about what it would have been like to come out earlier, to be a teenage girl or a woman in her 20s. But mostly, she's just glad to be out now. Margaret Serino, NPR News.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. It's easy to feel stuck if you haven't found your passion. For Alba Forello, a 26-year-old singer and songwriter from Barcelona, the feeling was constant. I didn't have the job that motivated me. I wanted to study, but I didn't have much money, so I had to work a lot of hours on a job that it wasn't making me happy. But after a period of personal frustration, inspiration struck her when she found dance hall videos. I remember one step that I really, really, really wanted to learn, that it was this step called needle-eye. You bend a little bit and you start to kind of like like drawing a number eight with your hips. So it creates kind of a wave movement with your legs. And Ferrello rode that wave to become Bad Gal, the reggaeton artist with a growing global following. I picked um, the name Bad Gal because I felt that it was an empowering name, a name that gave you strength. And that was something that I felt like I needed at that period in, in my life. Bad Gyal's debut album is La Jolla, which means jewel in Catalan. She says the album is a celebration of this newfound inspiration to enjoy life again. One of the more personal songs in the album is I See Soy, which translates to mean the way I am. Ocupada el año entero, un poco en lo mío ni le veo. Cuando el talento viene solo el dinero, hago lo que quiero yo no pienso entero. This song is a special for me and I feel like that represents a moment in my life where maybe you wanted, you knew that you were someone who wanted to do big things, but maybe there was something missing that it wasn't letting you be able to to make it real, you know? There was a point in my life where I wasn't able at all, but now I am. I feel like the concept of the jewel, I chose the jewel because it was a concept that it fitted on so many aspects. I like to see myself as a jewel, as a stone that came from a dirty, dark place and that you worked on and you cut, 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 work, work, work. So finally it starts to shine and finally you start to see that's the beauty that it is. But also like in the process of making the album and, and trying to finish the songs on the most perfect way. So I really, really liked that concept. I think my music makes people feel like they're able to be themselves, that they're able to express themselves the way they want. I feel like my music um, gives people this kind of freedom energy. And I think that's the thing that people connect the most with. That Spanish singer and songwriter Bad Gal talking about her song Asi Soy and debut album La Jolla.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is suing the owner of the former Pilgrim nuclear power plant in Plymouth. The civil complaint alleges that Holtec Decommissioning International improperly handled, stored, shipped, and disposed of debris that contained asbestos. The complaint says these practices put workers at risk. The plant shut down in 2019. WBUR has reached out to Holtec for comment. Some scheduled MBTA closures are in effect. The red line is closed between Harvard and Broadway stations through the end of service today to accommodate tunnel work. The T is providing free shuttle buses, and the commuter rail also is free this weekend between Porter Square and North Station. A big section of the Green Line also remains closed for track work through March 8th. It is 20 degrees in Boston, sunny today, highs in the upper 30s, a slight chance of snow and rain in the morning tomorrow, then becoming a mostly sunny Monday with highs in the upper 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for fall, bgsp.edu. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. The puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts, is out this week. So we are joined by Greg Pliska. He's the chief puzzle officer of the Puzzler podcast with A.J. Jacobs and a former puzzle guru of NPR's Ask Me Another. Hey there, Greg. Hey, Aisha. Good morning. So, Greg, remind us of last week's challenge. Of course. It came to us from listener Andrew Chaikin of San Francisco. Think of a famous character in American literature. Change each letter in that character's name to its position in the alphabet, A equals 1, B equals 2, etc., to get a famous year in American history. Who is this person and what is the year? The answer is Captain Ahab from Moby Dick, and the year is 1812. Okay, well, a lot of people got this right. There were about 2,400 correct entries. And this week's winner is Tom Gould of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Congratulations, Tom. Thank you. So how long have you been playing the puzzle, Tom? 
probably since the postcard days. Oh my goodness. I've been doing it at least as long as my daughter's been alive. She's now a junior at George Washington in DC. And so have you ever won before? No. Oh, what? Well, see, it, all that hard work paid off. Now you're here. Now you're here. So what do you do when you're not playing the puzzle? I work in computers uh, for an IT distributor, and I curate collections of products that solve a particular business problem. Oh, okay. But are you ready to solve the problem of the puzzle is the question. <laughs> I earnestly hope so. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I'll ask you formally, Tom, are you ready to play the puzzle? Yes. <laughs> okay. Take it away, Greg. Thanks, Aisha. And welcome, Tom. This week's puzzle celebrates Black History Month. Each answer is the last name of a notable Black American, past or present, hidden inside a two-word phrase. For example, if I gave you the phrase swelling tongue, you would give me the name Ellington, as in Duke Ellington, the band leader, musician, and composer, because his name is spelled out inside that phrase. Now, the two-word phrases won't necessarily be real dictionary phrases, but each will hide the surname of a famous person. Got it. All right, here's your first one. Bathtub manual. Um, you have an idea? Oh, Tubman. Yes. Yes, Harriet Tubman, the abolitionist. Next one is pumpkin granola. <laughs> uh, King. Yes, Martin Luther King Jr. Gerbil escalator. This one is a person, famous athlete, famous gymnast. Oh, uh, Biles. Simone Biles, exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you always want to look right at the space between those two words and see where you can find the name. Here's another one. Manitoba mailbox. Oh, Obama. Obama, Barack and Michelle Obama, right there in the Manitoba mailbox. I'll give you a few more. Alabama homestead. Mahomes. That's close to the top of the consciousness. <laughs> Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Archangel outside. Archangel outside. Oh, Angelou. Angelou, Maya Angelou, the author. And your last one, Kandahar Rising. That's Kandahar as in the city, rising. Harris. Yes, I was gonna say K-A-N-D-H-A-R, and that hides Kamala Harris, the current Vice President of the United States. Wow. What? I mean, you did a great job, Tom. I had to catch on a little bit in the beginning. He got me with the bowels one. Me too. <laughs> but you got it. You did a great job. How do you feel? I feel great. Thank you. For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Tom, what member station do you listen to? I'm listening to two. WBUR and WGBH, both in Boston. I love to hear that. That's Tom Gould of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. My pleasure. Okay, Greg, what's next week's challenge? Uh, this challenge comes to us from listener Eric Berlin of Milford, Connecticut. Take the word sets, S-E-T-S. -E you can add the three-letter word par 
to this twice to get a common phrase, spare parts. Now take the word genie, G-E-N-I-E, add a three-letter word to it twice to get a common phrase. Again, start with genie, insert a three-letter word into it twice, and end up with a common phrase. When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, February 29th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call, and if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play the puzzle on the air for Weekend Edition. And Greg, thank you for being this week's puzzler. Thank you, Aisha. Not quite 70 feet below the Baltic Sea, a stunning find has come into view. A stone wall, more than half a mile long, that dates back to the Stone Age. It's one of the oldest so-called megastructures on Earth. Science reporter Ari Daniel explains what it might have been used for. Finding that wall was an accident. It was 2021, and marine geologist Jakob Gerson was teaching a field course at the University of Kiel in northern Germany, a course conducted entirely aboard a research vessel on the Baltic Sea. During nights, we were mapping the shape of the seafloor at highest resolution. One night off the German coast, the students fired up the echo sounders and mapped a swath of seafloor. Then when we were sitting together, we saw that there was something special. It was a ridge that ran for six-tenths of a mile. A year later, Gerson, his colleagues, and a new batch of students lowered a camera down and confirmed this ridge was actually thousands of rocks lined up that formed a kind of wall standing about one and a half feet tall on average. It's usually small stones, but then at some places where we have a large stone, the direction of the wall changes. Gerson didn't know how such a structure could have formed. It was only when we went to the archaeologists that they said, you may have found something very significant. Um, I was probably the most skeptical of the entire team. Barrett Erickson is a prehistoric archaeologist at the University of Kiel. When she examined this structure, a line from Sherlock Holmes came to mind. If you have eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains must be the truth. Archaeologists never speak of truth. But I'm running out of things to eliminate in terms of natural stuff. Erickson reviewed the data and became convinced the structure was made by prehistoric humans who'd used lots of smaller stones to connect the larger unmovable rocks into a wall. She and others concluded it was used by hunter-gatherers some 10 to 11,000 years ago during the Stone Age to help them corral and hunt reindeer by the hundreds. The only way you can kill this amount of reindeer is if you cut them off at a pass somewhere. There would have been water at the other side. So the reindeer would have gotten trapped between the wall and the water, allowing hunters in wait to fire their arrows at the reindeer. If you build a structure like that, you're someone who knows the entire area extremely well. Ultimately, the area flooded, forming the Baltic Sea we know today and submerging this piece of hunting architecture underwater. The findings are published in the journal PNAS. I know this personally, working underwater is not easy.
Ashley Lemke is an underwater archaeologist at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee who's discovered similar stone walls in Lake Huron beside Michigan. She wasn't involved in this study. Lemke says these structures highlight that people of the Stone Age may have been more sophisticated than we tend to think. This is actually really early examples of almost animal domestication, right? Like before you start keeping animals in pens permanently, you're kind of making fences to hunt them. Leading, maybe, to livestock herding. But to confirm this wall was made by humans to hunt, more evidence is needed, like arrowheads and ancient DNA, in an effort to unite the biggest and smallest clues left behind by prehistoric people. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. a good movie as much as the next person. But if you're a regular listener to the show, you also know that I love a movie that's deliciously bad, especially if it's horror or superhero related. And for quite a few folks, the trailer for Sony's newest Spider-Verse spinoff, Madam Web, was more than a premonition that the film was a certified box office bomb. He was in the Amazon with my mom when she was researching spiders right before she died. That infamous line didn't make the cut in the final version. I wonder why. But there is plenty of wooden dialogue left. Not to mention some bizarre story choices and some really strange cinematography. All elements that have lit a fire of memes on social media. But is it so bad that it's kind of good? Or is it just kind of eh? And what makes a bad movie fun? Here to hopefully untangle some of this web is pop culture happy hours, Glenn Weldon. Hey there, Glenn. Hey, she greetings from the Amazon. I'm here with your mom. She says hi. <laughs> she says hi. Um, <laughs> you, you and the pop culture crew have already discussed this on the pod. Uh-huh. What did you think of the movie? Oh, oh, it's bad. Yeah. I mean, folks online are saying it's epically bad, the worst Marvel movie ever made. It's not even close, but Lord, it's not good. Uh, it has clearly been <laughs> focus grouped to death. It's been cut and recut by a very worried studio. And as a result, the story doesn't make any sense. It just kind of lurches all over the place. The villain is really dull, and all of his dialogue, for some reason, has been re-recorded and then kind of stuffed back into the movie very clumsily. And Dakota Johnson, she's a great actor, but she's an actor who brings a very chill, disconnected vibe. You heard it in the trailer. And she is struggling here to convey, you know, stakes, urgency, life or death, stuff that uh, superhero movies are built on. So you're like sitting there going, well, if she doesn't care, why should I? Is this why it's become such a meme? Well, yeah, uh, but the thing about memes is, I mean, memes are free. They don't get butts in theater <laughs> seats. Uh, and since the trailer dropped, people have been ripping this film to shreds, and more so when it came out, which makes sense. But I got to say, from my perspective, some of this reaction feels a bit performative to me. I mean, look, it's become a cultural phenomenon. We're talking about it. People like to pile on. You've also got a lot of film critics who are champing at the bit for the era of superhero cinema to be over. They're hoping that this is the film that's finally going to do it. I got news. It won't. And always in the background in fandom, I Aisha, you're going to find good old-fashioned misogyny. Yeah, it's yeah. a constant. You've got to factor it into any equation. There are fanboys out here who are going to hate on any superhero property that's led by women. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying this film's any good. <laughs> it's not. But this intensity of this backlash, I don't think it's merited by this little piffle of a movie. 
So how has the reception to Madam Web differed from other really bad movies like Sony's other spider-adjacent bomb, Morbius, which I did see for Pop Culture Happy Hour, and I I don't think I was a big fan of it. (laughs) Yeah, well, sorry about that. But, I mean, Morbius is the perfect example because that film I think is just as bad, maybe worse. The thing about Madam Web is it's a lot more fun to watch because it is so weird. <laughs> it's doing its own thing. It's just out here stumbling around like a toddler. Morbius took itself a lot more seriously. It was doing everything it could to cling to this, you know, superhero genre formula. So it's really dull. Did you know that there are 27 bones in the human hand? <laughs> Allow me to introduce the phalanges. <laughs> the metacarpals. And the pretty little stinky pinky. <laughs> Yeah. Now, see, Morbius was also a film following exactly the same trajectory, right? When the film came out, people made fun of the trailer. They made fun of the movie, Stinky Little Pinky. They made memes. But Sony tried to cash in on that, right? They re-released it in theaters. And, of course, it bombed again because I can stay home and make fun of this for free. I don't need to buy a ticket. But it's something like what Madam Web is coming in for because, you know, I don't get it because here's the thing. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. To me, that's a terrible movie. I'd argue that film is way more deserving of this kind of Madam Web style drumming because it wasted so many millions more dollars. <laughs> it was so much more expensive. But I've given up trying to find the logic here. Taking that into account, Madam Web is still a bad movie, right? But what do you think uh-huh. Uh-huh. is in the formula for making a bad movie a cult classic? Oh, well, to rise to the level of classic, you need uh, weirdness, idiosyncrasy, plus misplaced confidence. Like, that's the formula. <laughs> it has to be kind of blithely bad, heedlessly bad. If it's self-aware, if it's self-consciously bad, then you feel like it's hedging its bets, right? It's Morbius. It's boring. But to be a classic bad movie, you need, like, Tommy Wiseau's The Room and Showgirls. And, you know, here's the quintessential bad movie, Plan 9 from Outer Space. We found a lot of suspicious things out in that cemetery. Then again, didn't find anything to base a fact or suspicion on. That movie is passionately poorly made. That's not holding back, and that's why it's fun. Ultimately, why do you think watching such bad movies can bring us so much joy? I mean, everybody loves a big swing, right? We love to see a big swing when it connects like in uh, Dune Part 2 coming out very soon. Now, that is a hugely ambitious movie, and it nails the assignment, and that is a lot of fun to watch. But let's face it, we also love to see people just completely biff it, right? We love to see (laughs) that same passion, that same confidence. But if that confidence just happens to have been, you know, wildly misplaced and (laughs) completely unearned, then that's fun, too. But it's not just fun. It's funny. That's NPR's Glenn Weldon, co-host of the podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour. Glenn, thanks again. Thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just, Learn more at publicwelfare.org. 
Thanks for starting your Sunday with 90.9 WBUR and for listening throughout the week. You get the latest news at the start of the hour. And Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me comes your way at 10 this morning. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, you'll get the story on Nikki Haley's prospects in the Massachusetts Republican primary on Super Tuesday, March 5th. WBUR supporters include Music Worcester, presenting Orchestre Metropolitain de Montréal, led by Yannick Nézé-Séguin, Mechanics Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. Tickets at musicworcester.org. And La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at lacuchara.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, Ray Romano talks about watching himself with his sitcom wife while sitting with his real wife. And she said to me, she goes, you said more to Patty Heaton in that scene than you've said to me all week. (laughs) And, yeah, and I told her, we have writers. It's easy. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for the show that takes real life and makes it funnier. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm executive editor for news Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. In this hour, we have the latest from South Carolina after former President Donald Trump won the state's GOP primary contest. And the nuclear arms race could be headed to space. What are the risks for the U.S. and the wider world? Plus, author Sloane Crosley's new memoir explores her deep grief at the loss of a close friend. Then it becomes a bit pathological, where you think, if I stop, if I think about something else, it's like I'm leaving him. I'm getting further and further away from him. And a new crime drama deals with race in the U.K. It's Sunday, February 25th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Former President Donald Trump won a decisive victory in the South Carolina Republican presidential primary this weekend. He's walking away with about 60 percent of that GOP primary vote. South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has roughly 40 percent. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben has the latest. The AP made the call immediately after polls closed at 7 p.m. Eastern. Trump spoke to supporters shortly thereafter, leading off with baseless warnings about undocumented immigrants. You see millions and millions of people coming across the border illegally. We don't know where they come from. They come from jails. They come from prisons. They come from all sorts of places that we don't want to know. They come from mental institutions and insane asylums. Trump was widely expected to win this primary. Despite that, in recent weeks, Trump continued attacking Haley. Some attacks were demeaning, including calling her bird brain and insulting her husband, who is serving overseas. This is Trump's fourth straight nominating contest win. The next primary is in Michigan on Tuesday. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News, Columbia, South Carolina. 
Nikki Haley says she is not giving up her campaign for the Republican presidential nomination, despite her loss to Trump in her home state's primary. NPR's Sarah McCammon has more on Haley's plans. She's been saying that she's staying in the race, that she would not be done after South Carolina, regardless of the results. And as she stood in front of her supporters after losing her home state's primary, Nikki Haley said, I am a woman of my word and said she's continuing on. She says she believes there's a significant part of the Republican Party, if not half, at least a significant portion, that does not want Donald Trump as the nominee. And she argues that Trump cannot win in November. NPR Sarah McCammon, the Michigan primary is this Tuesday. Yemen's Houthi militia has responded with defiance to a joint U.S.-British strike against its weapons sites. The Iran-backed group warned that its attacks on shipping in the Red Sea would continue until Israel ended its assault on Gaza. The BBC's Simon Jones has more. London and Washington said these precision strikes are intended to disrupt and degrade the capabilities that the Houthis use to threaten global trade, naval vessels and the lives of innocent mariners in one of the world's most critical waterways. The Houthis, who control large swathes of Yemen, have been targeting vessels they say are linked to Israel and the West in response to the war between Israel and Hamas. Yemen has a key strategic position in the Middle East, especially when it comes to global shipping. But because of the Houthi attacks, many major shipping firms have diverted around southern Africa. The BBC's Simon Jones. A Yemeni Houthi attack last week on a British-registered cargo vessel created an 18-mile oil slick. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Outreach workers are raising concerns about increasing cases of overdoses caused by animal tranquilizers. Those drugs are commonly mixed into drugs such as fentanyl and heroin. But animal tranquilizers are not opioids, so overdoses cannot be treated with the standard reversal drug, naloxone. They also cause deep sedation and severe skin wounds. The Boston Globe reports that nearly half the illicit drugs tested by a Brandeis University lab this year contained a tranquilizer. Nantucket's Select Board has backed a proposal that would put new restrictions on short-term rentals. The bylaw would ban corporate ownership of short-term rentals. It also would ban new short-term rentals in timeshares and in housing units designated as affordable. Residents will discuss the proposal at town meeting in May. Previous proposals on short-term rental restrictions have not passed. Boston is expanding its public art project to the public schools. The city is asking for artists to submit their proposals for murals or mosaics that can be created on school buildings, and the deadline for submissions is Wednesday. Karen Goodfellow is director of public art for the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture, and she says students, the parents, and teachers will be able to appreciate the new art. Once the commissions are awarded, artists will start work this summer. The goal is to have the public art completed by the start of the new school year. Dorchester native Io Adebari is celebrating another award win. Last night, the star of the Hulu show The Bear took home the Screen Actors Guild Award for outstanding performance by a female actor in a comedy series. It is 20 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today highs in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, a slight chance of snow and rain in the morning, then gradually becoming mostly sunny with a high in the upper 40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Moan. 
focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts, and the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. With his victory in South Carolina last night, former President Donald Trump is one step closer to winning the Republican presidential nomination. He beat the state's former governor, Nikki Haley, by about 60 percent to 40 percent. But Haley has vowed to stay in the race, warning Republicans of a November defeat if Trump is their nominee. NPR Stephen Fowler joins us from Columbia, South Carolina. Hi, Stephen. Good morning. So I guess you got some sleep last night because the race was called for Donald Trump as soon as the polls closed at 7 p.m. So then I guess you just relaxed. Um, but Trump took the stage at State Fairgrounds right after. What did he say? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a shock for everybody at the Trump watch party in Columbia with how quickly things were called. I mean, he came out basically as soon as the polls were closed, flanked by a ton of Republican officials, both from South Carolina and across the country. There was some mingling, some photos, and then basically they turned the lights on and everybody cleared out early into the evening. Now, Trump's remarks were equal parts thanking those Republicans for supporting him and talking about the sort of dire stakes he's painting for this November's election if he doesn't win. In, talking about the border and immigration and the need to, quote, fire Joe Biden. Even before any votes were actually counted, he continued this message seeking to pivot towards the general election and basically reiterated to him the primary's over. There's never been a spirit like this, and I just want to say that I have never seen the Republican Party so unified as it is right now. Never been like that. But I'll point out, Aisha, even though Trump didn't mention Nikki Haley by name in his remarks, she's still in the race and still garnering a sizable share of Republican primary voters. Well, let's get into that. Yesterday's results pretty much closed the door on Haley winning the GOP nomination. So what did she say about the outcome? Haley came out later in the evening Saturday and listening to her speech and her supporters, you wouldn't really know that she suffered a blowout defeat. I'm going to count it. I know 40% is not 50%. But I also know 40% is not some tiny group. I mean, let's be clear. Haley hasn't beat Trump in any election so far, and future states look the same, especially when you consider the complicated delegate allocation math that officially determines the nominee. But she still will earn some delegates in South Carolina. She got about 40% of the vote, and her argument that a healthy segment of Republicans want someone else to be the nominee is partly why she's still in this race. Trump is a former president, is wildly popular with a certain slice of the Republican primary electorate, and it's not surprising that he's winning. But Haley's argument is that Trump cannot win the general election because of his chaos and baggage and criminal charges and so on and so forth. Trump seems ready to move on to November, but on paper, this is still a two-person race. So where do we go from here? Well, there's more to come. A Haley Super PAC dropped money in Michigan, which starts its voting on Tuesday. There's a multi-million dollar ad buy in 15 states and one territory that will vote on Super Tuesday the following week. And Haley's speech last night seems to reiterate that she's going to stay in it as long as she can. 
That said, at the rate this is going, the March 19th primaries in Ohio and Florida will very likely provide Trump enough delegates to officially clinch the nomination, so that may be a moot point. Trump has tried for weeks to say this race is over and it's time for Republicans to unite and move forward, and Haley isn't giving him that satisfaction, even though the result will likely be the same. What remains to be seen is how Nikki Haley does in these next states and if the money and momentum continues and, more importantly, what her voters will do in November. That's NPR's Stephen Fowler in Columbia, South Carolina. Thank you so much. Thank you. Revelations that U.S. intelligence officials are tracking Russia developing some kind of nuclear-powered space weapon have made for alarming headlines. Even with a caveat that it is not a nuke that could be fired from space, it raises questions about what is an increasingly competitive arena for global powers, space. Francesca Giovannini is the executive director of the Project on Managing the Atom at Harvard University. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. The space race between Russia and the U.S. obviously has a very long history, but it is the competition that we're seeing now, is it something different? I think this is exactly the right question to ask. So when you ask what is different about this militarization of space, well, it's not so much the technology, but it is how much our life has actually now come to depend on satellites. And so if you think about potential escalation in space, you are not only thinking about a war against satellites that control military forces, but you're also thinking about satellites that control phones, that control GPS, that control computers, right? And on which the lifestyle, especially of Western societies, have been based on. How does this device that Russia is said to be developing fit into that? So there are two scenarios that we have been discussing within the strategic community. And of course, we should also remember that the intelligence that was leaked was sort of, you know, very partial. And so we actually don't know the full story. And I think it's important we acknowledge this. You know, there is one scenario that says, look, the Russians are actually working and have been working for a long time on what you consider a space-based anti-satellite nuclear weapon. And so if this weapon were to be detonated, it will actually be able to cause an extraordinary damage, not only to one satellite, but to a constellation of satellites. But in my view, this scenario is actually quite improbable for one reason. If you place a nuclear weapon in space, yes, you can bring down many American satellites, but you will also create an enormous amount of debris, and you will also might actually be able to hurt or affect satellites of other countries, like China and India, right? So Russia at some point might be the cause of a significant damage of satellites also of its you know, partnering countries. So what is the scenario that you think is more likely? The scenario that is more likely is a anti-satellite jammer that is nuclear powered. And the jammer is, you know, a system that would allow, for example, to disrupt communications, right? Jammers blind satellites in a way that make them almost useless. So you would not necessarily have debris or destruction, but you would actually have a massive disruption in communication and information flow. So what would be the options for a U.S. response? 
in reality, the United States has known of the many programs the Russians are working on for quite some time. And in fact, you know, a few years ago during the Trump administration, the U.S. decided to create a U.S. space force. And so one option could be that the United States develop similar capabilities and they will actually then lock the Russians into a sort of deterrence relations. Kind of like with the nuclear weapons we have on Earth, the mutually assured destruction. Exactly. So you will create a sort of stability in space, not ideal. But there are other things, in my view, that the U.S. has been doing, which I think are really, really important. The first one is the United States, since April 2022, has adopted a moratorium against the use of anti-satellite technology. And it has basically invited countries so that the countries accept unilaterally not to develop technology that could destroy satellites in space. Last thing that the U.S. has started to do it, the United States has moved away from these large satellites, right? And it has actually adopted much smaller, cheaper satellites. If you think about the famous Starlink that is so important for the Ukraine military forces to command drones and so on and so forth, the satellites are very small. And so what the U.S. can do is to create a multitude of constellations of satellite and to create a redundancy system. So that even if the Russians jam one or two constellations, the U.S. has, you know, a sort of safety system. You talked about all of the space debris and the problems with that. Is that a concern for us down here on Earth? This is not a concern that I would say would play, for example, in the, in the short or medium term. But I think if we continue to allow countries to develop technology to bring down their own satellites or adversary satellites, the generation of debris is going to be so consequential that at some point in space, we might no longer be able to be safe in terms of space missions or launch of new satellites because these debris might actually become a real you know, safety issue. Scientists are concerned about what we call the Kessler syndrome. And the Kessler syndrome basically means that you might at some point have so many debris in space that these debris start clashing against one another and then clashing against satellites, pushing satellites to crash against other satellites, making space fundamentally inhabitable. Now, of course, this is an extreme scenario, but it tells you that we have to be way more intentional about the technology we develop, right? It's not only the militarization between two countries. It is now a global domain for competition and cooperation. That's Francesca Giovannini from the Project on Managing the Atom at Harvard University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. Later today on All Things Considered, NPR's Rachel Martin talks with comedian Jenny Slate about personal mantras, relationships, and how wonderfully weird it is to have a three-year-old. It's almost as if a, I had a pet that started talking. Like, it was already <laughs> enough that she was here. I was, like, drinking chocolate milk with her, and she said, are you enjoying that? <laughs> I was like, hell yeah, girl. Like, I am. I love chocolate milk, and you know it. Are you enjoying yours? Jenny Slate on life and her new comedy special, Season Professional. That's later today. Tune in for that conversation by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You're listening to NPR News. 
Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll take a look at why some southern states are talking about expanding Medicaid to cover low-income residents after the states had resisted the option for a decade. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. Tonight at 9, listen for a new program on WBUR, Embodied, opens up discussions about sometimes taboo topics, relationships, health, intimacy, and sex. That's Embodied at 9 tonight on the radio and the WBUR app. It's 20 degrees in Boston. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. Israel's cabinet last night agreed to send a delegation to Qatar to continue discussions about a possible ceasefire and hostage release deal. Mediators have been meeting this weekend in Paris. In Ukraine, Russian troops continue to launch shelling and rocket strikes against Ukraine's south and east. The two nations overnight traded drone attacks. The U.S. and Britain have struck 18 Houthi targets in Yemen. The strikes yesterday answer a recent surge in attacks by the Iran-backed militia group on ships in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. In California, public universities are required to provide abortion pills to students who want them. It turns out few universities actually tell students the medication is available. Here's Jackie Fortier with LAist. When Deanna Gomez found out she was pregnant last fall, the timing couldn't have been worse. She worked 60 hours a week at two jobs while taking a full class load at Cal State San Bernardino. She didn't feel ready for a child, not now. I grew up poor. I don't want that for my children, like ever. She wanted a medication abortion where she would take one pill at the doctor's office and another pill a day later to induce cramping and bleeding and empty her uterus. Gomez didn't bother going to the university health clinic, thinking it was only for basic health needs. Because that's exactly how it was explained to me. She ended up driving more than 300 miles to three different medical offices around Southern California, spending hundreds of dollars. She had no idea she was entitled to a free medication abortion right on campus. If I had known that, I would have taken advantage of it. I think emotionally it would have taken a lot of stress off of me because I would have been on campus. I spent a lot of time driving around after work, switching schedules, putting my homework on the back burner. 
A year ago, California became the first state to require all of its public universities to provide the abortion pill to students. But basic information on where or how students can obtain those pills is still lacking and often non-existent. Gomez owed hundreds for the medical care and gasoline. She had to work overtime shifts at her two jobs and missed a full month of classes, jeopardizing her planned December graduation date. So everything that you said was the reason and the impetus for the bill, that students had to miss class, that it was too costly, they had to go to several locations. Connie Leva is a former state senator who authored the law. The data shows women who have a child while in college are less likely to graduate than those who do not. Leva said she was focused on that and neglected a requirement to tell students. I don't know that we ever uh, talked about including something, advertising basically, that you could get a medicated abortion on campus. So it definitely wasn't ever taken out of the bill. For once, funding isn't an issue. Each campus has access to $200,000 in private funds to provide medication abortions, and they are allowed to spend some of that money on outreach. You know, I would love to see someone who's still in the legislature take that up and make it a requirement that the schools have to provide the information so that the students know. At Deanna Gomez's school, Cal State San Bernardino, abortion as an option was only mentioned in one place, in small letters on a poster inside the exam rooms at the health center. A student wouldn't see it until they were already waiting for a doctor or nurse. Clinic director Beth Jaworski. We need to work harder if there is a student who needed the service and wasn't aware that they could access it through us and not have to pay for it. But it's one student. We haven't been providing the service very long. It's been just about a year now. After our interview, medication abortion was added to the clinic's website. Several other campus health centers have followed suit since we started investigating. But Deanna Gomez wants more, including flyers, emails, and Instagram posts directed at both faculty and students. She says universities should be as vocal about abortion pills as they are about sporting events. You want to market the football games, you want to market volleyball games. You know, why, why is that important and abortions are not? Gomez did graduate from Cal State San Bernardino, becoming the first person in her family to earn a bachelor's degree. But she's angry at her alma mater. She wants to know why universities keep abortion pills a secret when the medication could help students like her. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. This story comes from NPR's partnership with LAist and KFF Health News. Perfect landings are hard to stick. Ask any pilot, gymnast, or Odysseus, the first commercial spacecraft to reach the moon. Odysseus, affectionately known as Odie, marks America's return to the moon since Apollo 17 in 1972. Seems like Odie got a little tipsy, though, since the spacecraft is now on its side. Steve Altimus, the CEO and co-founder of Intuitive Machines, which built Odysseus, is still pumped or you could say, over the moon. It's pretty incredible. It was a, quite a spicy seven-day mission uh, to get to the moon. Intuitive Machines says Odie is stable and sending more signals back to Earth for research on the moon's south pole. Though Odie's landing might not get tens across the board, it still did pretty well. Last month, a different spacecraft landed upside down.
Many of us have been there, the confusing days and weeks and months following the death of a loved one. At some point, someone will give the well-meaning advice to remember the good times. Sloan Crosley says after her friend's death by suicide, that advice was, quote, like feeding steak to a baby. I have read the grief literature and the grief philosophy and God help me listen to the grief podcasts. And the most practical thing I have learned is the power of the present tense. The past is quicksand and the future is unknowable. But in the present, you get to float. Nothing is missing. Nothing is hypothetical. Sloane Crosley has written a memoir about her friend, their relationship, his death, and the days, weeks, and months that followed. It's called Grief is for People. Sloane Crosley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about your friend first, like who he was, what he did, what he was like. Introduce us to Russell. <laughs> uh, gladly. So he was the publicity director for Vintage Books, and he was my boss for 10 years. But we, as I describe in the book, rotated or changed positions as they do in experimental theater. You know, sometimes he was like a brother. Sometimes I was like the older sister, a parent, a boyfriend. Um, everything. We were just partners in crime. Um, and he was a wildly generous, smart, very quick and painfully inappropriate person. <laughs> it seems like there was this deep connection, but it doesn't seem as neat as, you know, someone who could say, this is my partner, this is my mother, this is my friend. It was a little more nebulous than that. It was a friend. Yeah. That's a good word for it. I think after he died, I was sent, unsolicited, mind you, um, some self-help books about grief. And this is not to knock self-help. Honestly, whatever helps you is, is the correct answer. But they sort of bounced off my personal temperament like a rubber ball. And part of the reason is because even in the table of contents, you could see it was loss of a spouse, loss of a parent. And there wasn't really any instructions for loss of a friend. And I thought... Well, this is the one relationship we all have. Not everyone has siblings. Unfortunately, not everyone has parents. Some people don't have children, but everyone has a friend. And it's not like anyone was trying to rob me of my grief. It's just that I felt in the midst of all this pain, a sort of parallel attempt to find purchase on it, to think, do I have a right to be this sad? When his number came up in your phone the day that he was found, you write that you knew something had happened um, and you put off answering. How do you think you knew something was wrong? You know, there is a way that two people can be connected. I mean, a lot of it is sort of logistical. And so when I saw his home number come up uh, mid-morning when I knew he should be at the office, I knew it wasn't him. I knew something was wrong. I thought maybe he had been in an accident. I thought maybe he had been fired. Um, and I ran to a coffee cart and I bought the greasiest pastry I could find and I swallowed it whole like a pelican. And then I got on the phone with his partner and I was told, and I think my first memory of it is thinking I should not be on the street. I had just come from a therapy appointment and I had this sort of strange yeah. thought of, yeah. do I go back yeah. upstairs? Yeah, like, cause at that point you do need the therapist, right? You need to talk to somebody. The reason I was there to begin with is because a month prior to Russell's suicide, I had been burglarized. I left the apartment for an hour. And, you know, this is a suspenseful story about grief. 
because I was in the process of trying to figure out what happened and solve the mystery of the burglary when a much greater mystery uh, tragically fell into my lap, and that is Russell's death. You could have written it just for yourself because it's so deeply personal. It's an intimate look at yourself. It's an intimate look at your friend. People can be so judgmental. Was there any hesitancy to putting it out there like this? Um, no. You know, Russell actually worked on the Everyman's edition of James Baldwin. He was a big James Baldwin person. And I always think of that James Baldwin line where he says, you know, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. And mm -hmm. it's the connection. It's, it's, you know, you the more specific your story is, yes, the more you're going to expose yourself. But also the more you have a shot at reaching out to other people who have their own loved ones that they miss in such a specific way. It's the generalities of grief, both in how it's written about and how people react to it, that I think are not helpful and that are actually isolating for people who are going through it. Yeah. Were you surprised by how much you were thinking about Russell from that point on? Did you know the place that he had in your life was so profound? Sometimes you don't realize it. Yes, I was surprised by how profound the missing was and couldn't believe how much it took over. Then it becomes a bit pathological where you think if I stop, if I think about something else, it's like I'm leaving him. I'm getting further and further away from him. And I think anyone who listens to this will understand hopefully what I'm talking about. Are you still dreaming about him? Is he talking to you in your dreams as he kind of does a bit in the book? <laughs> Somehow I feel like you're asking me if there's a dog barking next door who's telling me to do things. <laughs> no, no. This, um, is, this is no son of Sam here. I'm just saying. I'm just you. kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> you're like, but this is, you know, um, I, I do not dream about him as much. But I do feel him, obviously, constantly. You know, every question you've asked. I imagine him just sort of sitting in the corner, just sort of, you know, affectionately rolling his eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know how publicists feel about us uh, reporters. But <laughs> early on in the book, you talk about the difficulty of memorializing a loved one for people who don't know or share the connection to the person and how you, you didn't want to describe Russell too much. Can you read mm. that for us? But this is what comes of writing not, I miss this person, but miss this person as I do. It's too much laundering of empathy. I wonder, do you feel like you succeeded in walking that line? Because there's <laughs> so much of Russell in this book and he's described so well it would probably be hard for people to read it and not to try kind of miss him also. Yeah. Well, it's not like I don't want people to miss him. Um, I want to bring him more fans in, in death than he had in life. And he had a tremendous amount in life. You've let go of this piece of it, but there are those things that you, you can never let go of, right? Yeah. But I don't think you're supposed to. I mean, so much of the book which is sort of loosely structured, uh, you know, it's five chapters around the five stages of grief, even though instead of acceptance, it's just afterward. Part of that reason is because it's about being okay with never letting go 
the worst parts of it, the most painful, um, sort of the deepest troughs of grief for people who are going through it, no matter what they're grieving, to feel that sort of patina of pressure to get over it, get over it, move past it. And I think you do, most people would do a lot better to just let themselves feel it for as long as they want. That's Sloan Crosley. Her new book is called Grief is for People. Thank you for talking with us today. It's been such a joy. Thank you. And we want to remind you that if you or someone you know may be considering suicide, there is a number you can call or text to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, 988. Just those three numbers, 988. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. A decade after the Affordable Care Act became law, 10 states have declined to expand Medicaid. Most are in the South, where Republicans control the legislatures. But now GOP power brokers in Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia suggest they might be open to expanding Medicaid coverage. Here's WABE's Sam Greenglass. Donnie Lambeth is a Republican state representative in North Carolina. He spent almost a decade trying to convince his colleagues in the GOP-controlled legislature to expand Medicaid. It was not a very pleasant journey early on because I was one of the few Republicans. My party did not accept it. But I would tell you, you need to be patient, but don't give up. Over plates of fried chicken and mashed potatoes, Lambeth told a recent gathering of Georgia lawmakers, many Republicans, that several times he almost did give up. But he stuck with it, telling colleagues stories he heard from people around the state. Tree farmers in Ashe County, the strawberry farmers down east. The theme that they all told me, we don't have health insurance, but we have a family farm that we're going to lose if we were to have a catastrophic event. Now 600,000 low-income North Carolinians are eligible for coverage. Expansion in Georgia would cover roughly 400,000 people. But for many Republicans, Medicaid expansion is still a toxic phrase, tied closely to former President Obama. So some GOP-led states have put their own spin on the program. Republican lawmakers in Georgia are now eyeing a model deployed by Arkansas, where some Medicaid expansion dollars are used to buy private insurance plans. Cindy Gillespie, the former Arkansas health secretary, told a group of Georgia policymakers that her state's approach infused money into rural areas over the last decade. In Arkansas and the surrounding states, you had 58 hospitals close. None are in Arkansas. In rural Georgia, nine hospitals closed, and free clinics have been forced to fill the void. Nurse Glenda Battle volunteers at a clinic in South Georgia. Our patients depend on us for their routine checkups and medications. They have higher morbidity and mortality rates. Battle testified at a recent legislative hearing. Medicaid expansion is an economic agent. It will allow struggling hospitals to remain open to serve the uninsured low income in their area and keep others employed. 
Many Republicans have come to acknowledge these gaps. But the response so far from Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp, a limited expansion with a work requirement, has enrolled only about 2,300 people since it launched last year. That's about half a percent of what full Medicaid expansion could cover and at a higher cost per person. But Kemp says he's not yet interested in full expansion. You'll have to talk to the people that are proposing that. I mean, those are not my proposals. Meanwhile, Georgia has left billions of federal dollars on the table. The numbers show that we're being penny-wise and pound-foolish if we don't go forward with this. At the luncheon, Georgia Republican Senator Chuck Hofstetler says Georgia has attracted billions in new investments from companies that make batteries, solar panels, and electric vehicles. But he worries it could become harder to compete for jobs with states like North Carolina that have expanded Medicaid. We need workers. We need healthy workers. The number one issue we have in Georgia right now is workers. For now, a lot of the recent rumblings about Medicaid expansion have been just talk. Top Republicans in the Georgia legislature suggested they plan to delay action for another year. But as more Republican states sign on for Medicaid expansion, a growing number of lawmakers believe the question is not if, but when. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Harvard University is taking steps toward a formal stance of neutrality. The Harvard Crimson reports that interim president Alan Garber is expected to announce a working group to consider implementing such a policy. If the change is approved, then the university would not make political statements as an institution. Previous Harvard president Claudine Gay resigned last month after criticism of her response to the war between Israel and Hamas followed by allegations of plagiarism. Nantucket is once again considering new restrictions on short-term rentals. Nantucket's select board has backed a proposal that would ban corporate ownership of short-term rentals and also would ban new short-term rentals in timeshares and in housing units designated as affordable. Residents will discuss the proposal at town meeting in May. Here's a sweet option for wrapping up the February school vacation stretch in Massachusetts. Today, the State Department of Conservation and Recreation is offering free maple sugaring tours at Blackstone River Valley Heritage Center in Worcester. Visitors will learn how maple syrup is made. 90-minute tours run every hour from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's 22 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 30s. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, Ray Romano talks about watching himself with his sitcom wife while sitting with his real wife. And she said to me, she goes, you said more to Patty Heaton in that scene than you've said to me all week. (laughs) And, yeah, and I told her... We have writers. It's easy. Uh, I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for the show that takes real life and makes it funnier. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, Focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, 
committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The U.S., the U.K., and France recently put sanctions and travel bans on Israeli settlers committing violence against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley went to visit one of the areas where settlers have been most active. Hello, Nada. We're on our way to the South Hebron Hills with our guide, Nadav Weiman. Once an Israeli Army Special Forces sniper, today Weiman is part of an organization called Breaking the Silence, made up of former soldiers speaking out against their country's occupation of the West Bank, home to three million Palestinians. The area of the South Hebron Hills where we're going to be today is full with unauthorized outposts. Actually, three of them were built since the 7th of October. That's when Hamas attacked Israel, yeah. killing 1,200 people and triggering the war. Weiman says the smaller, unauthorized outposts are sprouting from more established settlements. Settlers are building new unauthorized outposts everywhere, and they're not being stopped. That's because Israel has the most right-wing government it's ever had, says Weiman. The country's finance and security ministers are actually from the settler movement. Weiman says the settlers from unauthorized outposts are even more hardline. Since October 7th, we saw an increase in settler violence and 16, 16 Palestinian communities of sheepherders fled. 16. It's a number that I never thought I'm going to say. We pull up at the recently deserted sheepherding community of Zanuta. Weiman regularly checks on it because the villagers are hoping to come back after the war. But something is wrong. Oh my God, he closed it. Whoa, 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 Who is that? The 250 villagers and their sheep were chased away by settlers at the end of November. So whose sheep are grazing in the schoolyard? Vyman yells that question to the shepherdess guarding them, who doesn't answer but quickly gets on her phone. The school was also recently bulldozed. Here's a door in the middle of the rubble. There's children's drawings still on the wall. The, the tin roof is mangled and twisted. Weiman says settler violence is aimed at forcing Palestinians out of strategic areas. The settlers are protected by Israeli soldiers. Why to demolish the school? Why? Because you want families to feel they are not safe over here, the kids cannot go back, because if you don't have kids, you don't have life, right? It's not only stealing away their, uh, their livestock, or it's, you know, it's destroying their uh, sense of, uh, of being safe, of, of living, going to school. You're bullying the weakest population, he says to the shepherdess. Are these the values you were raised on? Weiman says one settler is responsible for chasing away this community. Enon Levy, whose recently built unauthorized outpost is visible on the opposite hillside. Levy heads the list of several settlers recently sanctioned by the Biden administration. Soon, a young guy arrives in a truck. He's wearing a sweat jacket with a settler extremist symbol on it, says Weiman, who shows me a video on his phone. This is Enon Levy with the same truck attacking other communities in the area. 
with his truck. Settlers like this man and Levy have stepped up their activity while the world is focused on the war in Gaza. Not far from Zanuta, 63-year-old Palestinian farmer Azam Nuaja walks through his olive groves. Israeli warplanes streak past overhead. His village of Susia is surrounded by a large settlement and several unauthorized outposts. Nuaja pulls back the metal he's using to cover his cistern since its concrete top was bulldozed off and rocks and gravel dumped into it a few days ago. Cisterns are the only source of water for Palestinian communities here. They aren't allowed to connect to settlement water pipes, even though those pipes often run through their land. Nuaja says everyone knows who did this. In the days after October 7th, two, three days later, bulldozers and vehicles started arriving around the village, and they were recognizable bulldozers. We knew that they belonged to Inun Levi. Nuaja says they've always been under pressure here, but since the war, it's become much worse. To top it off, many of the settlers are now in the Israeli army reserves, he says. Some of the settlers in army uniforms, armed, started to come into the village during the day, during the night, to enter into people's houses, to scare and intimidate the children and the women. It's like being surrounded by crime families. How is it possible that this is the reality, that we're afraid to leave our houses because here there's 15, here there's 10, like mafia? When Biden announced the sanctions, Israel's settler finance minister said it wasn't possible for an Israeli citizen to be deprived of rights due to an American order. But within a day, Levy's personal and business accounts were frozen. The Bank of Israel issued a statement saying it would comply because evading sanctions would expose Israeli banks to significant risk. Weiman says the sanctions are a big deal. Since the sanctions that were imposed by the U.S., England, and now France, Everybody's talking about settler violence, right? Israel is understood we stopped living in a bubble because now everybody understands that there's a price. But Nawaz doesn't think sanctioning a few individuals will change things. There are so many larger, more destructive elements than one settler who lives here compared to what's going on with the support of the American and the European governments who know and who see what's going on and who don't do anything about it. He says what's needed is real peace and equal rights for everyone. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, in the West Bank, South Hebron Hills. trying to play a clip the other day from a new TV show for its star and we had some technical issues. No, you need to act it out. I'm afraid you're going to have to oh, act yeah. it out. <laughs> British accent, go. No way I'm trying that. We'll leave the accents and the acting to Cush Jumbo. Trained in theater, the Brit made a splash with a one-woman show she wrote and starred in about Josephine Baker. She really hit it big playing lawyer Luca Quinn on the CBS dramas The Good Wife and The Good Fight. Her new series, Criminal Record, pits her character, an up-and-coming black detective sergeant June Linker, against a senior white detective in the London police force. It kicks off when June gets a tip that a black man in jail for murder just might be innocent. 
And yeah, that senior detective might be to blame. You are aware that he confessed. What if he's innocent? That case was investigated fairly. What is he hiding? Let it go. No way she'll let it go. Kush Jumbo also executive produced Criminal Record. And as the Apple TV Plus show begins, she says her character is simmering with frustration, pushing up against an old guard institution like the police force. It's a constant battle about being passionate about this job to the point of putting herself in danger a lot of the time. And yet feeling so disappointed and frustrated by not only the uh, corruption and, and the racism, but the misogyny. Did you draw on your own personal background or your own experiences for those aspects of this role? You know, whether it was dealing with the race or the misogyny? I mean, look, Aisha. Yeah. You and I, we're both women. Yes. And we're both of colour. Yes. And um, we don't need practice at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. You know, people are always asking me, how did you find this? Or what did you draw upon? I'm like, listen, we're, we're all born the way we're born. So if you're a woman, you've been doing this whole misogyny thing a long time. And if you're a black woman, you've been dealing with microaggressions and macroaggressions for a long time. So it wasn't so much that as it being actually quite cathartic to look at how to frame it in a way that helps an audience to not just sit watching a show which is gratuitous for the wrong reasons but actually makes you want to talk about stuff afterwards because personally my job is not to make the world a more polarized place it's to create a space where people can go this is gray and we want to talk about why this area is gray why it's complicated in the U.S., it is palpable. People are going at it pretty constantly over race. Is it the same way in the U.K.? I knew the show was special, but I hadn't accounted for the response that we have got about a British police show about injustice and from all over the world. And it's been really interesting to me that we so often think of these things as, well, this is a British racial issue. This is an American racial issue. And then you suddenly have an email from someone in Brazil or Venezuela or Australia or Iceland or, or Paris that's saying to you, this show really speaks to me because of the framing of these conversations and what's happening. I actually think that culturally there's a misconception that there are no race discussions to be had in the UK. And I suppose there's lots of reasons for that. Those conversations are different, but maybe one of the things we were trying to talk about with the show was that the British essentially are repressors. You know, like things are very much under 10, 15, 20 layers, but the response shows me that many of the ways that it's coming out are universal. You're very well known for American shows like The Good Wife and The Good Fight. Is there a difference in doing those versus a series that you, you make at home in the UK? God, there's, I mean, there's lots of differences, but mainly it's the thing with Criminal Record was it's the first show that I have shot in my hometown in my natural accent. Mm, okay. I've done many British shows where I have either done a Northern accent or a Manchester accent, a Leeds accent, or I have been a lot posher. But my natural accent is from South London, which is a very distinctive 
London accent and I've actually never shot in it. I've also, having been born and bred in London, it was emotional and inspiring to be shooting next to projects I grew up on and signing autographs for kids that were sitting on the same swings that I've been sitting on 20 years before or like where I'd kissed a boyfriend behind some bins. That was like my whole life going in full circle because when I was eight or nine years old, all I wanted to do was pretend to be other people for money. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't come from a background where I thought that would ever be possible. So then to be doing it and then be exec producing the show and be having other kids see me do that from where I'm from was really amazing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you talked about the different UK accents, but do people ever come up to you and they're shocked because they think that you're American? Yes, all the time. <laughs> all the time. My favorite thing is like a lot of actors in London, probably like a lot of actors in New York, actually, the quickest way to get around sometimes is the subway or mm-hmm. taxi. So people, you see actors all the time in London and I get stopped so much and people go oh my god you look just like that american actress from the good wife and i go yeah that happens to me all the time (laughs) and they don't know no they they don't know and you probably clocked that i i'm somebody who kind of prides myself on looking quite different Mm -hmm. each time i do something so i love the chameleon aspect and i think sometimes people are like that woman who's like getting a happy meal for her kid in the middle of, you know, some rough part of London can't possibly be the actress that I just watched on Netflix or, you know, like, I think they're just like, she looks like her, but it can't possibly be her it because can't be. this no. scenario does not make sense. And I like that too. <laughs> well, I think that's great. And I mean, you also like, so you don't just do TV and film, but you also do stage work you've just come off a run as lady macbeth opposite david tennant in london how do you balance all of these different mediums theater is something that i've always done it was my entrance into the business i've been on stage for actually most of my life now i first was on stage when i was four or five years old and i've pretty much done i try to do a play every two years maximum as a gap because it it's like a refill station it's like where I go to fill myself back up with where I'm at physically and emotionally and I do all kinds of theatre but I I love Shakespeare and classical theatre because I love language and literature and um, it would be very difficult for me if someone turned to me tomorrow and said you will never do a play again or never do a musical again I would really struggle with that because it's my church Yeah. I came across an old quote of yours and you said, most of the time you just get what's available and hope at some point in the future you'll be able to choose. Do you feel like you've arrived at that point? Oh, wow. I must have been really young when I said that. (laughs) I do feel like I've arrived at that point. Yeah. It's been a long time since I did a job because I felt it was the only job to do. As you get older in this business or probably any creative business, you have to begin to think about the purpose of why you're doing it. And it can't be the same purpose that you had 20 years before. I think there comes a point where you go, every job that you do takes a lot of time and energy, takes time from my little five-year-old son's life. And so I want to be doing a project because I think it has something to say about the world. As long as I feel it's going to stretch me in some way and add another little piece to what my 
uh, contribution to the business should be. And I feel that a lot of the time that's me using where I am now to open spaces up to more kids like me who are making their way into the business. That's Kush Jumbo. Her new limited series, Criminal Record, is now on Apple TV. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. This is NPR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock here on 90.9 WBUR. Join us next week at City Space for a conversation with Maria Inojosa, award-winning journalist and host of Latino USA. That's Monday, March 4th. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Becoming a Man at ART, a world premiere play about the courage and the community we need to become ourselves. Now through March 10th, amrep.org. You might think you know the story of the rugby team that crashed in the Andes and resorted to cannibalism to survive. But in his latest film, director Juan Antonio Bayona wanted to show a different side of what happened. It's about love, about generosity in the most extreme way. The horror and the hope of survival in Society of the Snow, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUH Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.